Comics. Movies. Music. Video games. Technology. Blu-ray. Television. This is the HHW LOD Podcast Network. The HHW LOD Podcast Network proudly presents Real Heroes, the podcast that takes a critical look at comic book movies. The good. I am Iron Man. The bad. I punish the guilty. And the worthless. I am the law. Everything's alright. everyone and welcome to the real heroes podcast this is our episode on guardians of the galaxy i'm your host russell latham and join with me to help me on this journey across the galaxy is mr jordan from jersey jim deets and richard sheldon chub toad how you doing guys great these dumb trees are my friends so awesome you got to stand around in a circle now great great job yeah (laughs) bunch of jackasses (laughs) I, I feel like this movie is almost like more highly anticipated than even the Avengers, right? I mean, like with the Avengers, we pretty much knew what we were getting, you know, a whole two and a half hours of awesome. But this one, I think we were like cautiously optimistic for a while. And then as we saw more, we got more excited about it. But I, I, th- I think I think this was the biggest unknown of all of them. This was kind of like getting a Christmas present from Grandma. You didn't know it could either be the Red Rider BB gun or it's socks and underwear. But yeah. thankfully, we got the Red Rider BB gun because this film was fantastic. There were a lot of variables. I mean, if you think about it, like you make a good point, Russ. When we were going into Avengers, we'd already had a Thor movie, a Cap movie, uh, you know, an Iron Man, a couple Iron Man movies. You know, we kind of knew the you know where it was going and what we were going to get with this. This was really. Uh, you know, a bunch of variables, you know, it was, it was a lot, it was pretty much unknown how this movie would end up doing or whether it would appeal or not with a bunch of characters that hardly anybody outside of us, you know, geeks would know and, you know, whether it had that crossover appeal, but evidently it has, it's, it's doing great and, and, you know, spoilers, I loved it too. But. Yeah. My duties prediction of, uh, I believe it was 200 million domestic are looking better and better. I think so. Yeah. <laughs> so let's get right into it. As we as we do on the Real Heroes podcast, um, so of course, movie was released August first, two thousand fourteen. In case you're listening to this from from the future, all right. I think I'm going to pull the curtain back a little bit here. So we originally recorded this whole entire episode uh, on the Sunday after release, and through various personal circumstances, I could not get it edited, uh, and I had my file on my computer, so nobody else could edit it selfishly. And the movie has kind of taken off box office, so we thought it would be silly to report on an opening weekend box number for a movie that's been out now uh, more than two weeks. So uh, we are going to just do a quick recap, and then we will continue on with the episode as we recorded it. But talking about the box office numbers, which we like to do on Real Heroes, um, and especially for newly released movies, it can be a little challenging, but Guardians opened to... 94 million domestic which blew away the august box office record i think it it kind of shook everyone i think 
Disney was thinking maybe if it did 65 or 70, they would be happy with that. And obviously, since it hit the 94 million, it just totally killed everything. Um, and since then, it's kind of been like slow and steady wins the race. I mean, Turtles upset it the following weekend by doing 65 million, which I think was a little bit higher than than anybody, including the studio even thought, Paramount even thought. Um, but Guardians held strong, and like we kind of predicted, the box office fallout wasn't was in the 50% range, which for a second-week movie is pretty dang good. Yeah, it's been an interesting summer. I was just reading an article today. I was telling you guys about it before we recorded. Uh, there's been no uh, movie from the summer season that's gone over $300 million domestically. Usually there's one you know, big blockbuster or a couple that go you know, over the 300 million mark and none have this summer. I mean, the closest have been Maleficent and, uh, and X-Men Days of Future Past and the Transformers movie, uh, all breaking 250, but not making it all the way to 300. And I was wondering if, if, uh, Guardians was going to have that kind of legs, but it seems like uh, it's probably going to peter out just shy of that, uh, optimistically, you know. Yeah, I, I plotted out the curve in my head just looking at the box office mojo um, numbers that we have, and it looks like t- 275 would be optimistic, maybe more closer to two. Well, I, I could see 275 is actually probably right on the money for where it'll, it'll peter out, but uh, still, that's amazing. I mean, when back in last year when we had the duties and uh, I predicted 200 million domestically, uh, I was kind of given a, a raised eyebrow for that one, but uh, I'm happy that it that it. Succeeded. But it does look like it's going to outperform Cap, though. Cap is at uh, uh, two, just shy of two hundred and sixty million right now, um, and Guardians is at you know two hundred and thirty mil. So um, I mean, it, it's it's going to be neck and neck with Cap. Um, it's pretty impressive yeah. considering you know how much of an unknown quantity the Guardians were before the movie. You know, and looking at it, so they uh, Box Office Mojo has a side by side comparison of. Uh, Guardians and Captain America the Winter Soldier, which I think is a, is a fairly accurate uh, comparison just because they're two Marvel properties. Uh, and at after 19 days, uh, Guardians is at 229, uh, 229 million. And after 19 days, Captain America the Winter Soldier was at 205 million. So it's, it's outpacing it by almost $25 million. Um, so if it ends its run 25 million ahead, Jim, like you were saying, uh, that's going to be 285. Now, I don't know if it's going to be able to keep that pace up with the summer winding down, kids going back to school, um, and all that kind of stuff. But the the interesting thing has just been the overwhelming positive word of mouth. I mean, I have I know there's a couple people I work with that have seen it twice. There's other people that are like, I'm going to see it. You know, just I just haven't had a chance yet. Um, whereas with some of the other movies, you know, once you get into that two or three week period, most casual people are like, yeah, yeah, I'll wait till it comes on video. But, you know, anybody I know that even has a casual interest and hasn't seen it definitely plans on going, if not this weekend, then sometime during the week next week. So it's just been an amazing summer for movies overall. I mean, Guardians in particular. But I mean, if you think about it, like all the different franchises that came out you know, with uh, entries this summer, Godzilla, Planet of the Apes, um, Transformers. Um, you know, the reboot of, of Sleeping Beauty. Maleficent was huge. I mean, huge numbers. I mean, 236 million. Um, you know, this is the second biggest grossing, uh, movie of the summer. Um, you know, X-Men. Uh, so many great, you know, great movies, great franchises, and yet not, you know, the one, you know, outlier, the one, you know, big blockbuster that, you know, everybody uh, seems to, you know, have, have as a must see other than Guardians. I mean, I think Guardians really yeah. has kind of filled that role this summer. 
I think I saw Cap twice in theaters. I've already seen Guardians three times, and I plan on seeing it a fourth by the time it's out. Nice. Um, of, of theaters. So, I mean, it's just such a great movie. So we're looking at the worldwide box office. Uh, Foreign is at $196 million. So the worldwide total um, as of, at this point, it's August 20th, is $425 million, which um, I, I think... I don't know which territories it hasn't opened up yet, but I'm guessing that this one may be a slower rollout to the rest of the world as opposed to, I think, like Captain America and obviously Iron Man, uh, the Avengers. Those were pretty much like day and date worldwide, if not, you know, mo- uh, I know Iron uh, Iron Man and Avengers actually premiered in uh, the, the U.K., Slightly before the U.S. release, so I think I think the only major foreign market I, it either hit this week or is about to hit is China. Yeah, for some reason they were at the the um the la- the end of the pecking order because I just saw James Gunn uh, promoting the movie in China. Actually, gotcha. Um, he, he made some uh, comments about uh, who Star Lord's dad might be. So, um, and it's not going to be the person from the comics, right? Which is very interesting. That is, yeah, it's very interesting indeed. But yeah, I think um I. I I don't know. It's just, it's, it's been an incredible summer. I mean, have you guys been sorely disappointed by any movie this summer? You know, any like genre movie that you were looking forward to seeing? I mean, I, I really haven't. I mean, I had my problems with Amazing Spider-Man Two. Yeah, I mean, like that's I said, the things that did great in it did great. The things that didn't do well in it really didn't do well. Right. In. But I didn't even. This is the first Transformers movie I didn't see in theaters. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't. I haven't seen any of them. I'm, I, I wasn't even thinking of them <laughs> for some reason. These yeah. don't look like Transformers to me. I'm sorry, but anyway, getting back to Guardians, um, it's it's been a great success story for for Marvel. I mean, considering what a gamble it was, but I think you know them using lesser known characters, they were able to play around with the canon a little more, and you know, kind of tweak the character personalities a little more. And I think that really played to the strengths of uh, you know James Gunn as a filmmaker and made for a better movie. We'll talk about this a little bit in the rest of the episode that you're about to hear, but. I I, w- I just kind of had this thought today while I was I was driving home from work and I was like, you know, I really think the soundtrack is what is the thing with this movie. I think having that I, I I can't explain it, but it's almost like a phenomenon that that's what people I think are identifying with more so than anything is just, you know, 40 year old music thrown into this, you know, space uh, comedy opera sci fi movie. And people are just like loving it. I mean, these songs are just, you know, uh, you know, people everywhere are, you know, buying the soundtrack. They're listening to it, you know, at their desks or in their office or, you know, whatever. And I, I, th- I think, you know, maybe we underestimated in the beginning the draw of the soundtrack in 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 sucking people into this movie. Uh, well, so I think a point that I made on the show that we were about to hear um, is that, that that was a really great way to ground that all of that space opera. You know, you know, and bring it down to earth as it, as it were by you know putting that music with the, you know all the different you know aliens and environments and stuff. So yeah, I think it was a great great um, choice. And, and you're right, the soundtrack has been number one for you know since the movie has come out. It's been number one on iTunes, and it just it reminds me of like when Pulp Fiction came out. I mean, sure. I don't know. I, I mean, everybody had that soundtrack and everybody was playing it, and I mean they were you know just really wanted to kind of bring a little bit of the the, the movie home with them, you know. I think it's kind of the same way with the soundtrack to this movie. You know. Well, cool. Well, we, uh, like I said, we just wanted to, does anybody have anything else? I'm sorry, before I flip it back. I just want to say hi to Jim from the past, from to, from Jim from the future. 
I would say add point five to whatever score I give the movie in the end <laughs> because uh, it just gets better every time I see it. It really does. Like aside from one one person's performance, every single thing in that movie I like more and more every time I see it. Nice. I like to tell myself not to eat that burrito from three days ago. That was a mistake. <laughs> um, no, just kidding, everyone. Um, so, yeah, uh, sorry for any redundancies. But, again, th- I think the box office, uh, like we said in the episode, is is such a huge story with this movie. Um, I thought it was a disservice because of the lag that we didn't touch upon the fact that uh, this thing has gone gangbusters. Um, and uh, hats off to Marvel, Kevin Feige, James Gunn, the cast, the crew. And everyone for you know seeing this thing march towards five hundred and possibly even six hundred million dollars, depending on how the the rest of the foreign markets play out and and how much you know what the legs look like in the U.S. So we now take you back to your uh, regularly scheduled episode of Real Heroes. Out of all the properties that they could have started their MCU off with. Iron Man was kind of a gamble. I mean, he's a well-known figure to those of us in the geek community and whatnot, and people know him by reference, but not enough to where it would have bumped up such excitement that and, and, and dollars that that garnished. And pretty much, I mean, that just started film after film, ten films now, that, uh, I mean, I don't even know what the total gross would be for if you take all ten together, but it's got to be massive. The Mouse House must be very... Um, pleasantly surprised and happy with their box office i believe it's either the second or the third highest grossing franchise of all time behind uh, i know harry potter was one of them and they're creeping up on that um but i forget if there was another one or not but yeah it's it's huge the bond franchise i think just because it's had you know 22 movies and the last one made over a billion but i I think the total on all 10 is up to 6.5 billion in total yeah. box office, I think is what it is. I mean, when you look at, you know, you you look at Avengers, one point five billion, Iron Man three, one point two billion, Captain America: The Winter Soldier, like at seven hundred million. So, you know, you're talking three movies right there are are you know well over three billion dollars or right at three billion dollars. Um, it's and that's only counting box office, right? Not Blu-ray and DVD and special edition and downloads Netflix and games and, and yeah. Yeah, right, I, I will say. I'm sorry, I just wanted to get back to something that Rich was talking about real quick. Um, you're right, absolutely right, that you know Iron Man was kind of a, a big gamble for them to take. And I think a lot of that rested on two people's shoulders that it was such a success. John Favreau for coming to it with a you know a good directorial vision and a really solid um you know take on the character. And um and Robert Downey Jr., who, you know, whose charisma like brought Tony Stark into the consciousness of, of moviegoers and a lot of people who didn't know the character from before. And I think in a lot of the same ways, you've seen the same thing here with James Gunn making a James Gunn movie. If you guys have seen his other movies, you know that they're just oh, as yeah. quirky and, and cool as this. And Chris Pratt, who really kind of carries this mo- a lot of this movie on, on his, you know, on his charm and on his shoulders, you know, and very much that kind of, you know, Harrison Ford style, Ford style rogue uh, type character. So I think you know, there are a lot of parallels you can you can make there as far as you know them taking a character not as well known like Iron Man or Guardians of the Galaxy and using it as a pillar for a whole new part of the franchise. I mean, I think that this one was a much bigger risk than Iron Man, but I think at the same time there's several factors. I mean, like Russ said, they marketed the hell out of it, but they didn't just market the hell out of it. The way they marketed it the way that they reach the general audience and kind of approach this, well, yes, it's part of this Marvel Cinematic Universe. This is a whole different ball of wax we're going down here. And, I mean, this is kind of like, I, I, I mean, 
I don't want to compare it to Star Wars, but I at this point I want James Gunn to be the director of the Star Wars film that comes after the one Abrams is doing. You know, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I think I, I, I said something similar when I, I said something similar the day I saw this. Um, I don't know. I mean, if Iron Man hadn't panned out back in the day, it, it would have had the same effect that the Green Lantern flopping did on DC. You know, DC wanted you know, Green Lantern to be their Iron Man to kind of catapult their universe into you know, movie prominence or whatever. So, you know, I think this is... It would have been worse. Yeah, it would have been much worse because, I mean, we wouldn't have... All these little Easter eggs and everything that were planted it would have been like, oh, that would have been great or, oh, that could have been cool, you know, and... Not, not only that, but none of it Marvel... Happen. Yeah, I mean, Marvel leveraged their entire portfolio of characters to finance Iron Man, so... And, and to start up the studios. So if Iron Man and the Hulk had flopped, it's very likely that... Marvel itself would have gone completely under or been right. bought out by God knows who and Disney, you know maybe. we wouldn't have any of this. <laughs> it would have been Avia Rod and it would have been terrible. Yeah, yeah which I mean that that brings to to a good point Jordan. You know you mentioned Avia Rod who's you know still involved on the Fox side uh, but Sony you oh Sony yeah went from I guess for a while back yeah back before all that it was he, I mean cuz he was involved in the early X-Men films but I guess yeah he's moved to the he he's the guy who's now moved on to saying absolutely ridiculous things about Spider Man. Yes, but <laughs> yeah. Kevin Feige, I think, I think he deserves a lot of credit because I think it's his steadfast vision moving forward that's really kept this on track. I mean, he's Marvel. I think now has a for, a formula for the most part, and they've they've kind of got a, a path that they're going on. And uh, I think we've seen a little bit of negativity and maybe the press with you know the departure of Edgar Wright off of ant-man but you know marvel's got a brand and marvel's got a formula and you know it's worked pretty well so far and you know they they definitely let the director put their flair on it but i think they want to make sure it feels like and fits in with a marvel a marvel movie and i think feige is has kind of been the one guy that's been there from the beginning you know he's, he's been there again back to the fox and the sony days with spider-man and with um you know with the x-men franchise and even the fantastic four he's you know he's been involved for a very long time uh, but now as kind of the head of the studio, he's, uh, I, I, you know, I give him a lot of credit. You know, I think, he, you know, he's also out there, you know, preaching. You know, I mean, you see him at the cons, you see him in interviews, you know, you see him with, you, you know, when they announce, you know, the cast of, of whichever movie, whether it be the Avengers or, you know, Cap or, you know, even Guardians. I mean, he's right there with them, you know, you know, answering questions and and, you know, putting things out there. So I, I definitely give him a lot of credit for you know the success of this franchise and and this movie in particular to him well, one of the things i, I think ex- I'm, I'm sorry uh, one of the things i Go think ahead. he does that's really smart though is to get these directors who definitely have their own vision and their own style yes. to helm yes. their big tentpole movies i mean like favreau like whedon like the you know the guys who did cap america you know winter uh, uh winter the soldier russos. And the russos, russos thank yeah. you you know and like edgar wright would have been on ant-man you know and like james gunn is on guardians of the galaxy i mean Doing that, you know, like putting these movies in capable directorial hands, but guys who have like different directorial styles and different directorial visions, even though they're all in the same universe, I think is you know one of the smartest moves he's made. Absolutely. So, all right. So we talked about numbers and kind of praised the the head honchos a bit. So, you know, as no surprise to anyone, I think that's either seen this movie or you know has kind of seen the buzz around it. Uh, the Rotten Tomatoes score is holding pretty steady at 92%. Um, there's, 
I think it's kind of gotten where everybody's either reviewed it that's going to review it. Uh, it it it's funny because about four or five days before it it launched, it kind of dipped down to like the eighty nine percent. But since then, the critical response has been positive, overwhelmingly. So we're at ninety two percent. The audience rating is at ninety six percent, which again, no surprise, uh, no surprise there at all. So you know, it, it just across the board, everybody loves it. I mean the uh, uh, IMDb gives it an eight point eight, which again is a pretty solid uh, rating there as well. So uh, critically, you know, fans fans seem to love it, which you know is is just fantastic. Because um, so, again, things could have gone south. <laughs> I'm just curious, what how does the IMDb rating um, compare to like some of the other Marvel movies? Um. That's a good question. And I think James Gunn has made up with this movie for his sins by making the Scooby-Doo live-action movies. Well, he only wrote those. No, he directed, and hey, he directed some of us them. enjoyed those. Did he? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, Captain America the Winter Soldier is at 8.1 um, on IMDb. Let's see what Avengers looks like. Uh, I'm sure that's going to be higher, obviously. 8.2, oddly enough. Um, now that's six hundred eighty-five thousand users giving it a score, so pretty pretty high. It's funny too because a lot of the um, reviews I've read have, have compared it to Avengers, you know, very much, and like, you know, is this the best Marvel movie ever? You know, is it does it beat Avengers? You know, um, that's that's been really the go-to that they've been comparing it to. It's interesting too if you you know talk about the Marvel films as a whole, you know, as a franchise. How different in tone this is to to Winter Soldier, you know? Sure, like sure. Winter Soldier sure. was such a serious spy drama, you know, very cool, suspense filled, and great. But this is, you know, 180 degrees in the opposite direction, and I think that is is smart marketing as well. Sure. I don't know if I could say this is better, or worse, or on the same level as Avengers, but to me, I think I personally had more fun watching this film than I did Avengers, and that's not a knock on Avengers because I loved. Avengers, but it's kind of funny is uh, I've got Guardians and Winter Soldier. They're kind of, they're my top two out of the ten Marvel films, but you know, I'm leaning heavily towards Guardians. I mean, they were able to build this entire thing with all this character development, get all of this into this one film, and make it enjoyable, have it make sense, and it wasn't a stretch to believe in a talking raccoon and his sidekick, the talking tree. So... Yeah, I, I I'm very impressed with everything about this film. So we've talked to, at this point quite a bit, but uh, the director, of course, is James Gunn, who, you know, I don't know if people out there are, are widely familiar with his movies. Um, he did a movie called Super with uh, Rain Wilson and Ellen Page, which was um, good movie, good but very quirky and weird and almost and also extremely dark. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Liv Tyler was in that as well. Uh, and Oh, that's right. I forgot well, about that. Well, he yeah, gave us Slither. Yeah, Slither in. was awesome. Yeah, I, I love that Slither. movie. Yeah, that is a good movie. Andy wrote Which, that Zack Snyder uh, remake of Dawn of the Dead. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Rooker um, says he wants to do a Slither the musical. Nah. <laughs> so on the writing side, of course, uh, James Gunn and Nicole Perlman were given primary credits, but according to IMDb... Uh, Dan Abnett and Andy Lanning were given writing credits on this too, and they were. I believe the specific credit was consulting or inspired by consulting. They were definitely consulted by Gunn, though. I, I've listened to a few interviews with him, 
because um, he loved their run so much yeah. and really wanted this to feel like it, and it did. And uh, so I don't know if they actually wrote anything for it, right. but they were definitely given credit. Uh, right. I was told that uh, that um, they came on set, they did discuss a lot about their 2008 run, um, and a lot of like the setup for scenes and things like that were taken from some of the panels from that run. Um, but yeah, there wasn't really much writing. They're kind of credited because in a way, without their comic, this may not have been what we got. Sure. Oh yeah. They are, they are the, you know, the, the Stan and Jack of this sure. particular corner of the Marvel universe as it currently right, stands. Sure. Right. Uh, so the music, this really didn't have a score. Well, I, I guess it did have some score elements to it, but this movie. Yeah. Tyler Bates did that. Yeah, Tyler. So Tyler Bates is credited with music. Um, overall, and so Tyler Bates, I guess, being that James Gunn has some ties to Zack Snyder, uh, Tyler Bates kind of uh, famous for doing a lot of Zack Snyder stuff, 300, Watchmen, Dawn of the Dead, uh, and he's done a bunch of television stuff too, Low Winter Sun, Salem, uh, and some other stuff, and I, I think, so, so I think, you know, not just the score, but I'm sure he probably had a hand in maybe, I'm sure Gunn had a heavy hand in it, but I'm sure Tyler Bates probably had a hand in picking the actual soundtrack for this movie you mean awesome mix number one exactly 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 <laughs> and boy is it yeah. best movie soundtrack ever Ooh. it knocked pulp fiction down to number two on my list pretty in pink down to number three dazed and confused down to number four hmm. this i i have listened to this soundtrack over and over and over again at work the past two days and i can't get enough of it i love it yeah, it's kind of funny um, that, you know, it's kind of like what's old is new, right? I mean, we've kind of gone away for a long time from an actual soundtrack, and it seems kind of passe, you know, because everything now is, and I think a lot of it's just licensing and everything else, but, you know, a lot of these movies, especially these, you, you know, really ever since Star Wars have gone to like an actual, you know, symphonic score, and so to kind of go back to having an actual soundtrack of music, uh, it, you know, it's, it's, again, very, very much an 80s thing. It's so. a genius. And not it's just a. Go ahead, man. A, I was gonna say it not just a soundtrack standing alone as the music to the film, but actually part of the scripting, part of the plot of the film. Sure. It, it was brilliant, brilliant. Well, I mean, if you think about it too, you're introducing all these alien conflicts, alien races, alien worlds, and everything. It was a really cool way to have in the background a way to ground it to something familiar. You yes, know, right. And, and, you Absolutely. Know, when Absolutely. You know, when you're getting this giant info dump of the Kree and, the, and all these other different things going on, you know, then you you know you you see this great you know spacecape and you hear Moon Age Daydream by David Bowie. It's like, you know, you're you're safe here. You know, what I mean, it's like something. Yeah. As they say, this, a spoonful it. of Bowie helps the exposition right. go down. <laughs> yeah. Bowie in space. By the Concord. So getting into the cast, who we've kind of touched on a little bit, um, headlining it is kind of. Almost seems like kind of a cross between Han Solo, and Indiana, Indiana Jones, Jones, and Luke Skywalker. You and know, Mal, kind of all Mal Reynolds. One. Definitely some Mal Reynolds in there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's true. Yes, definitely. Um, is And Burt Macklin. Burt Macklin, yes, yes. <laughs> um, I didn't steal the president's diamonds. And maybe a little bit of Apollo and uh, from the original Battlestar. Oh, I was thinking from Rocky. Yeah. Uh, I was thinking from yeah, the authority. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but we have Chris Pratt, who's playing Peter Quill, the Star-Lord, which I think, uh, you know, 
whenever you, you they cast somebody in a role and you see it, it's like, oh, I can't imagine anybody that you know could do could have done this better or different. Um, and I, you know, it sounds passe, it sounds cliche, but I truly believe it. I mean, this he's just goofy enough and just offbeat enough to where it's funny and endearing and not obnoxious um, and relatable. And and I think I think that was really important because he's not such a such a bad guy that you know people get turned off by it but yet he's not so goody two-shoes that people just kind of roll their eyes either so well according uh, to an interview i i'd read he really had to sell himself to gun absolutely gun did not want didn't really think of him in this role at all didn't think he could do it or whatever pull it off and man he totally proved him wrong because he, he nailed it yeah and what I what I think, you know, going back to what you said, Russ, uh, of him not being too much of a jerk or anything like that, you know, he's one of those caught in a state of Arrested Development characters, sure. but he's caught in a state of Arrested Development as a good kid. Yes. Like, the what little we get of him, he was not, you know, he was the kid who cared for the frog and, and didn't like the bullies and all that kind of stuff. He may be childish, but that doesn't have to be a jerk like it so often is. And that's what I think really, you know, it's kind of that Andy factor from Parks and Rec. You know, yes, he's like a child, but he's a good-hearted child, and you know he he may do some weird things, but you're gonna love him no matter what. Yeah. Um. So then next on my list is Zoe Saldana as Gamora, and I adding another color to her resume. Yes, 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 yes. Um, I I I thought she was okay. I think if there was a weak link in the in the portrayal of a character, and again, you know, you're talking about a weak link in amongst some very, very strong and solid performances didn't take me off, didn't turn me off, but there were a few times where I felt like she just phoning it in is maybe too harsh a criticism, but I just didn't, she, I just didn't grab the, I didn't connect with her as much as I guess as I did the other ones is what I, the other characters, is what I'm trying to say. I mean, she did a fine job. She looked good. Um, you know, given the fact that she, it looked like it was all makeup and prosthetics. It wasn't, you know, CGI and, and all that. So it, it, it came across very well. And there's sometimes that I think her character was done very well, but there are a few other times where when she was, when she was trying to basically say she was good and trying to convince like Nebula that, you know, she should come over there, you know, to her side, it just, it seemed a little disingenuous. I, I can't really. I'm having a hard time articulating what I'm trying to say, but I think of the main cast, I I felt that she was the weakest. But again, in a very strong cast, uh, that's that's she did a better job than you know most average cast members in other movies. I totally disagree. I'm sorry. I oh, thought she was awesome. Yeah. I thought she was great. I thought the what especially impressed me about her performance wasn't only the the actual performance itself, but the fight choreography that she did. I mean. Oh all no! That awesome. All that training she did for yeah. like Columbiana and those other action movies she did is really, really paid off here. And the prison scene—I mean, the fighting scenes with Nebula—very credible. I mean, you you believe that she is one of the deadliest women in the galaxy. Um, I don't know. I I really enjoyed her performance. I thought it was great. And the little scene with her and Quill—you know—and his pelvic wizardry or whatever it was. Yes, pelvic, <laughs> pelvic yes. sorcery. Who put this? Who put the sticks up their butts? That is cool. No, that was, we can yes. we can be like Kevin Bacon. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she had some that, really you know, good I, lines, and I thought she was—I thought she really did it, did a good job. I mean, the only—I mean, maybe criticism I would have is maybe I would have gone with someone a little more MMA, like maybe Ronda Rousey, or you know—but they probably wouldn't be as good an actress as Zoe Saldana. So I was real happy no, with the performance. Yeah, but I, I'm with you I, there. 
I have to disagree with you too, Russ, for all the points that Jim made. But I mean, to me, this is probably my favorite role she's done. Um, and I'm a huge Star Trek fan, so that's saying a lot. I, I thought she was perfect for it. I thought that she played it well. My only complaint is from a scripting standpoint is I would have liked to have seen her character do a little more. But that's not the performance. It's just I really like that character. Yeah. I think I'm a little bit more towards Russ on this one. There were I, I did like her in the role, and and I would agree, even if she's the weakest of the five, you know, that's you know somebody has to be, sure. you know, yeah. Um, there were a few, and, and really only a few is even too strong a word. One or two line readings from her, also one or two from Dave Batista, that I kind of rolled my eyes isn't the right word, but just kind of kind of gave the screen a back glance and went, that's I don't know that I would have gone with that particular reading. But in general, I thought she was just fine. And Dave Batista was, was wonderful, even if those couple line readings made me kind of scratch my head a little bit from a editing standpoint. But, uh, yeah, and, and part of that does come down to what you're saying, uh, Rich. The script didn't give her as much to do. That said, I also think it leaves her with a lot for the sequel. Absolutely. With Nebula escaping. I, I mean, so. spoilers here, but with Nebula escaping and... You know, and with Thanos more of an ever-present threat, she kind of had to be slightly in the background. But at the same time, she's also the first, you know, jackass to stand up in the circle, yeah. if you will. Right. Yeah. And, you know, she, she she did exactly what she needed to do. It's just there wasn't a lot needed that she needed to do in this particular movie. Now, you mentioned Dave Batista. Are we moving on to him? Yeah, next next up, yeah. I was going to say Dave Batista as as Drax the Destroyer, because I'll... who is not a, a princess or a thesaurus, <laughs> if you were wondering. Because I have never heard of this guy. I'm not a wrestling MMA fan, any kind of that stuff. I can't think of anything I would have known him from. And he was in Riddick, and he was in uh, the, man, uh, the, the Iron, Fist. Iron Fist. Fist. Yeah, the Risen, the I Risen movie. I haven't seen the Man with the Iron Fist, but yeah. Um, he was brass body. I have to say is he was my favorite out of the entire group as far as he, he was a st scene stealer in my opinion. Yes. And yes. I was so impressed with this guy. I'm like, I don't know what this guy did beating the heck out of another guy for a living, but he's definitely got acting chops and he's got good timing. His comedic value that he added to every scene he was in was just fantastic brilliant yeah he was the most mm -hmm. surprising to me like i i i expected that people were going to respond positively to rocket and and groot you know just because of you know the whole repetitive line thing and you know i think we saw enough of chris pratt as peter quill in the trailers and stuff but yeah batista's drax is the one that really i think was the the breakout of of this movie and i just like you said, the comic timing, I think, is something that really caught me off off guard. I I, I just didn't equate him to be able to deliver this uh, quite this way, and I was I was really impressed uh, with him. And I think his his interaction with the other characters and his dialogue is what probably made me laugh just as much as anything else. Yeah, we keep talking. We keep going back to the the the, the comedy of this movie too, and it's interesting if you think about it, like. How the Marvel movies have had this like consistent thread of using uh, comedy to like cut you know the, the tension of their action in a lot of their movies. You know, even if it's something small like in Winter Soldier, like on your left, or something huge right. like in Avengers, Puny God, 
or you know not not that you know not so great a plan or I think I'll have that drink now. I mean, these have been funny movies. You know, they, they're action movies, but they're funny, and I think that really kind of undercuts some of the pomposity that can come about. I mean, if you if you look at the DC movies, like if you look at the Christopher Nolan Batman, or you look at Man of Steel, I mean, those are not humorous movies very much. You know, there, there might be like a one liner here and there, but they really don't use comedy to like you know to accent the action or whatever um, at all. So it's like I, I just see this huge difference. You know, I mean, this was a funny movie. And like you said, Dave Bautista had some great funny lines in it. You know, they all the characters did. You know, there's some great comedic moments in this movie. You know, I mean, on top of it being a good superhero action science fiction movie, it's, it's really funny, too. And I think that's like the hidden asset of the Marvel Studios movies in a lot of respects. You know, it's something that they they use a lot more to their advantage than, you know, I see them using on the DC Warner side. And I know, like, from I take my wife, for example who's not a comic fan, not a sci-fi fan, not, you know, into Star Wars or any of this other stuff, but she loves these Marvel movies. And the humor has a lot to do with it. It's just the, you know, that it could be funny as well as as the action. And I know just seeing the trailer and stuff like that, that's what she's like, "Oh, that looks funny. I want to see that." You know, that was that was her first response. And I mean, she loves the Avengers. I mean, she could sit there and watch that over and over again. She loved Firefly. I mean, she probably she probably loves Firefly more than I do, and and Serenity. So, and it again, I I think it's just that humor that that's the that's the element that kind of brings, you know, the civilians as as it were into into this world is you know because people can relate to being able to laugh and and see action and you know some people are just turned off by just watching people beat the hell out of each other or watching a bunch of crap blow up, um, but if you can make them laugh while you're doing it and not be ridiculous and and you know take your audience seriously about, while making them laugh. I think that's, you know, kind of the, the magic formula that Marvel has. And they know when to kind of crank it up and they know when to turn it back down. And I think they realized, you know, for this movie, they needed to crank it up. And that was what was going to draw people. And I think they, they succeeded. And I, a lot of comparisons are made to this movie and Star Wars. Just real fast. I'm sorry. I don't mean to be, sure. be monopolizing. But I think if you go back to the original Star Wars movies, there are a lot, there are a lot of great one-liners. And there's a lot yep. of humor there. You know, get this yep. walking carpet out of my way. You nerf herder, you know. Uh, thought they smelled bad on the inside or on the outside, you know. And there's a lot of humor there. So I can see where the parallel will be made. You have this great, cool space adventure. But it's kind of, you know, the, the gravitas of the pomposity is undercut by, by this humor. Um, I think that's, you know, something that, you know, the, especially Dark Knight Rises, I think, took itself way too seriously, you know, and, sure. and, and, um, it's just such a stark contrast to what Marvel is doing by using, you know, the humor as like the secret weapon to kind of, you know, take the, take the air out of, you know, the, the, the uh, gravitas that can kind of, you know, I mean, you're, you're talking about people in spandex running around punching each other pretty much, you know, I mean, it's kind of a ridiculous situation to begin with. But, you know, to make it pompo- you know, pomposity on top of that is just kind of, you know, kind of undercuts what you're trying to do. And I think the Marvel humor is really like a good doorway to bring in people, like you said, like, you know, your wife or whatever that don't, you know, aren't geeky or whatever, or aren't sci-fi fans, but, you know, can enjoy it on that level. Well, and the thing is, too, is it's not just the humor itself. It's the fact that over the course of 10 films, every character that we've been introduced to in this Marvel universe um, they made sure there was, you know, it wasn't a 2D character. There was different angles and depths to their personalities. Um, we've learned quickly with some characters and over time with others, you know, what their weaknesses are, what they enjoy, what their humor is like individually, so that when they write these types of scripts, 
give us this humor built in that we're not feeling forced to laugh at something that was ha-ha, chuckle-chuckle. It is, we're buying into those characters that that is their personality, and the fact that they are able to weave all those personalities together to make it as enjoyable and funny as it is, that that takes... That's true filmmaking. That's true storytelling right there. And that's one of the things I appreciate the most about these Marvel flicks. So moving along, um, we got, I'll kind of group these together just because they're, you know, it's more voice than it is um, physical performance because neither, neither one of these actors did the actual physical performance or motion capture for these characters. They just did the voice and that's Vin Diesel as Groot and Bradley Cooper as, as Rocket Raccoon. And, um, I I, th- I think Vin Diesel was the perfect choice for Groot, just that gravelly, scratchy, you know, way to 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 that he can express himself. And then at times when it needed to be to be a little softer, but still get the point across. So I th- I think he did a good job. Uh, Bradley Cooper's Rocket. I th- I I saw the little fifteen minute clip ahead of time, and there were sometimes I felt it worked, and sometimes it didn't because it was more like that kind of New Yorky gangstery kind of uh, feel to his voice. But I think in the flow of the movie as a whole, I think it, it, it seemed like it worked much better. Um, I never, when I read rocket raccoon in the comics, I never read him with a British accent, even though supposedly that's how he's supposed to be portrayed. Uh, so he's been portrayed that way about 10% of the time. Yeah. So, so it didn't bother me at all to, to, to hear him that way. And I, I think Cooper was a, a good choice. I mean, I, I, you, again, when I would think about who would, you know, voice that character, that's not, definitely probably in the first top 10 or 15 that would come to mind but i I think he did a really you know good job and i think it 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 worked really well yeah i mean that that voice that he did and and it's nice to see you know a big name actor like bradley cooper not just being bradley cooper with with a, a fur cgi mask it's actually a voice he's doing that voice is about as close as you could get to the voice I've always heard in my head as Rocket without some type of weird techno babble and getting it directly out of my skull. Like, that was pretty much perfect. Yeah. For me. I agree. I mean, I always, I don't know if it was so much the, the New York accent, but it was, I always pictured him speaking with, like, a real attitude and really short, you know, just to-the-point sentences. That's how I kind of always had it in my head and I, I don't know I, I agree with Jordan it just matched up to me and I have to say since we talked about Groot too is uh I'm not sure what my favorite Groot quote is from the film but the scene <laughs> the scene where he breaks the fourth wall and gives that face to the camera was hands down the my favorite moment of the Groot stuff except for the very end Oh, and that's his puny god moment. Like, comedically, that is timed exactly the same. Like, second per second, frame per frame, exactly the same as the Hulk puny god moment. Well, it jumped into my mind when that scene happened, (laughs) definitely. It works so well. I loved it. So next next on my list, I've got Lee Pace as Ronan the Accuser. And, again, I I think he just did fine. I mean, you know... it wasn't one of those performances that the intention was to blow you away um, or to overly impress. I mean, he, you know, he had a purpose in the film and I think Lee Pace did a great job. Uh, I've, I've been watching Halt and Catch Fire on AMC and he's, he's the lead, you know, one of the lead characters on that show. Um, I haven't really seen too much other stuff that he's done. Uh, so I, I pretty much know him from there, but I, I thought it, well, well, who does he play in the Hobbit? 
He is the Elven King. The uh, oh, okay. Yeah, what's her face is from uh, Kate from Lost's uh, dad. Okay. Um. So yeah, very very different uh, different performance in that, and just you know with the wig and and the and everything else, it hard, it, not as easy to recognize. I, I'm almost kind of sad that they did away with his character though, because I I would have liked to seen him be kind of like this returning villain, because I, I I definitely think this franchise has legs. Um, and I, I guess, you know, it's comics or movies or whatever that it's possible to bring him back or whatever. But but I, I kind of like the fact that they I like Ronan in the comics. And this is a very different Ronan than than what we see in the comics. Um, oh, yeah, but absolutely. it was it, it was cool. He had You know, he had the blue skin. He had the headdress. He had the hammer. Uh, you know, that was good enough for me. <laughs> yeah, he's much more of like a Cree fanatic in this than he is in the. I mean, in the, in the comics, as he's portrayed, was portrayed for a long time anyway. I mean, he, just, he was kind of a, a noble guy living, you know, under the rules of kind of the cruel Kree Empire. You know what I mean? Like he has certain yep. nobility, married Crystal from the Inhumans to try to, you know, heal the breach and when the you know, when Adeline took over the Kree Empire. And I mean, you're, you're right. It's a very different character than what we've seen in the comic. But I, I agree. I mean, I would like, it's too bad they, they took him out because I thought they could definitely use him, but. Yeah. Said it's takes somebody Marvel. Out, he can know. return. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What you mean? Th- death in comic books is impermanent. What? Yeah. I mean, we already seen Groot die. We know he's back. Yeah. You know, it's who else died that came back? You know. <laughs> yeah. So next, I have, uh, I, I guess, fan favorite of the network. I should say, um, we've you know talked to him personally. Um, <laughs> you know, we've we've talked about him, of course, on Walking Dead TV podcast. Rich, I think, uh, has interacted with Mr. Rooker many times on a personal personal level. Um, But Michael Rooker playing Yondu Udanta, which uh, this is not your father's Yondu, but it was good enough for me. I mean, kind of this southern fried, roguish, um, you know, scoundrel type of character. I I thought it was he was a lot of fun, you know, and just kind of like this surrogate father with this love hate relationship that he had with with. Uh, with Star Lord, I thought was pretty cool, but I just, I just, you know, they kind of made him a little bit goofy, but not too goofy. Uh, and you know, the whole, you know, uh, you know, silver cap teeth and the, uh, the weird thing stuck on his head and the whistling um, arrow. Was just, they, was... not, they not only put his sonic arrows on screen, but they made them awesome. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Yeah, because that was one of the coolest weapons I've ever seen in a movie. And to make something that was so seventies and 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 kind of lame when they they came out with it, like with the original Guardians, to make that that cool, I thought was quite an accomplishment. Oh yeah, you know, I mean, yeah, I read the, I read those books fan. in the seventies, and he was he was pretty much like the Green Arrow of the Guardians of the Galaxy, but he would whistle to make his special arrows like change, you know, turn corners or turn around to get their enemies or whatever. So, I mean, this is almost like an alternate universe you do for me, but I was totally cool with it. I thought he was great in the role and like the, you know, like you said, like the surrogate father of, uh, of Quill and like the head of the Ravagers. I mean, it's a perfect place for a character like Worker. I just assume he's, he's like a early ancestor of the Yondu Udanta that That's what oh, I yeah. exists in the year yeah, 3000, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was never a huge fan of the original Guardians run. I mean, there was some cool stuff there, but I I never really got that much into it. And I remember the Yondu from that series, and you know, it, it was a cool character. But I I personally like this version much better. I mean, 
what little I remember from the 2008 run where he interacted some, this fits more to that character to me anyway. And uh, that's the Guardians that I really enjoy is that run oh, yeah. from Abnett and Lanning. So. Well, yeah, I like I, I like that too. I've been, I mean, one of the first comics I ever read as a tiny geek, you know, not to go too off on a tangent here, was uh, the Defenders team up with the original Guardians of the Galaxy back in the late 70s. And I've kind of followed the characters ever since all the way through the Abnett and Lanning stuff. So, I mean, I'm always happy to see Michael Rooker in anything, dude. He could have been like, oh, yeah, sure. Waiter oh, yeah. number three, and I would have been like, dude, it's Michael Rooker, you know. So, well, it's interesting that Merle's death made Yondu possible. Yeah, because yeah. oh, yeah. I yeah. was reading, yeah, that he wouldn't have been able to do it. He was going to have to take a lesser role, and then he found out, oh, they're going to kill Merle. And um, to have Gunn and Rooker, the Slither people, back together, I yeah. greatness. Yeah. And one of the Slither monsters was in the uh, yeah. collector's collection. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll get to that, though. Yeah. So next I have... <laughs> well, he wasn't in the collection. Yeah. Karen Gillan of Doctor Who fame. Uh, Yay! Who, who Amy went, Pond! Yeah, Amy Pond, who went above and beyond, shaved her head the whole nine yards as Nebula. And I thought what they did with her voice was really cool. I mean, you could yeah. tell it was still Karen Gillan because it had just that slight tinge of the of the accent to it. But they modulated it enough, and it it just was really cool. And I I I liked her character a lot, and I I liked I, I like that they're kind of keeping that aspect of the comics, you know, tying them into Thanos, tying her into Gamora, uh, and and just the fighting between those two was was really really kind of a highlight of the film for me. So um, I'm I look forward to you know her her fate was kind of uh, ambiguous at the end, but I nebulous to her. was it nebulous. It was oh that was totally unintentional. Oh, believe it or not, that moment when she reconstitutes her form yeah, was, yeah. Cool. was one of the creepiest things I've seen in a Marvel yeah, movie. Yeah, um, so I look forward to her return. Hopefully, I look forward to the uh... Jaimon Hansu as Korath the Pursuer, which I thought I thought again he did a pretty good job though. You know, kind of at this point the famous scene from the trailer where he interacts with Peter Quill early and then later in the movie. Uh, so I thought I thought that was just kind of a, you know, again he just you know kind of served his purpose and was a was a was a, a good choice, and John C. Riley, who <laughs> I think at the time people thought really John C. Riley, but he played Roman Day, one of the one of the no one of the Nova Corps men, who I think you know early on we kind of knew that the Nova Corps was going to play a a role in this movie, and I don't maybe we didn't realize how big of a role they actually played. Uh, but I, but I thought he did a really good job. He wasn't, you know, again, just the right level of John C. Riley, in my opinion. Well, ma'am, I don't believe that anyone is one hundred percent. Yeah, <laughs> that was awesome. <laughs> so the just the deadpan yes. delivery he gives that line was so perfect. Yes. <laughs> Seen with him and Sarah Fenowitz um, too when they're processing the yes the Guardians is great and, and to see Sarah Fenowitz in this too. I mean he. He's this British comedy guy who's awesome. He's not really well known. Well, he's Darth Maul. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, but I mean, he's not really known for his comedy here in in the states. He's known for being Darth Maul or whatever. But um, it was cool to see them working together as as members of the Nova Corps and important members too, yeah. Saul and Roman. Yeah. I mean, those are those are big names. Glenn Close is Nova Prime, who again that was kind of a surprising casting announcement for me. I wouldn't have expected Glenn Close to you know, show up in a Marvel movie, let alone a Marvel movie in space. But I read an actual interview with her today, and apparently she's all in for a sequel. Like, if they do a sequel, she wants she wants to be part of it. She, 
apparently had just a really good experience making it. She it intrigued her to kind of make this kind of a movie because she's never really done this kind of movie before. Well, unless you count one hundred to one Dalmatians. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, Disney, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But that's not really sci-fi. Yes, yeah, not really. I, I enjoyed Nova really? Prime way more talk, than Cruella Deville. Yes, I, I hear here. <laughs> so that was that was kind of cool. I always like to see when you know kind of well respected or uh, you know seasoned actors and actresses take these kind of roles and don't just take it as like, well, I'm collecting a paycheck. Um, you know, because because again, she could have easily just said, oh yeah, I'd, I'd love to do it if they did again. Just kind of leave it at that. But when people elaborate and you know go on about it, that to me says you know that there's more to it than you know than them just collecting a paycheck. And hopefully for the sequel, they give her more to do. Absolutely. Um, and I have theories on that, but it's just because, I mean, like, don't get me wrong. I completely agree with you. It's great to see Glenn Close here. She did a fine job. Anyone could have done exactly what she did in this True. movie. She did not have a huge role. True. Um, but, again, hopefully in the sequel, she gets a much expanded role. Yeah. Now, this is Benicio Del Toro. Again, kind of a of an odd choice. You know, this isn't his typical, you know, role. We kind of got a glimpse of his collector at the end of Thor the Dark World. Uh, so it was kind of see that his, you know, his his role was, I think, a little bit bigger than I thought it was going to be. Um, and based on what we saw at the end, it, it sounds like he still looks like he's still going to be alive and well and and uh, available for for a sequel, of course. But and see, it's funny you say that. I actually thought his role was smaller than I was going thought it was going really? to be. Really? Yeah, I, I expected him to be a bigger deal huh. in, in the movie. And I enjoyed his performance. I actually feel like they toned it down quite a bit from the end of Thor. I 2. agree. I agree. But I like what he did. See, and I yeah. think I'm Baby Bear. I thought it was just right. I <laughs> oh, I don't disagree with you that it was a good amount to use it. I just thought he would be in the movie more. Or as I like to call it, the Easter Egg Warehouse. Yes. <laughs> yes, indeed. Because it's full of them. So a late casting announcement. I guess this came out and was just confirmed very recently. But Josh Brolin as Thanos. And again, he didn't do the motion capture. He just did the voice performance. Uh, but again, one of those roles that had to kind of have the blessing of not only James Gunn, you know, Kevin Feige and Marvel, but also Joss Whedon, because we know down the road he's going to be a bigger part of the Avengers universe. And I think at this point, you know, the kind of the, the the smart money is on Avengers three kind of being the culmination of, you know, all of this, you know, Infinity Stone gauntlet, uh, you know, space epic, you know, kind of stuff going on. So. Um, and I, I thought his voice, the voice acting was really good. I, I liked, you know, again, they did enough, you know, modulation or whatever with his voice to where it kind of sort of sounded like him, but, but it, they changed it enough to not just go, Oh, that's Josh Brolin. Um, the only thing I thought was odd was his face seemed weird. Like, especially compared to that little glimpse we got at the end of the Avengers, but there was something weird with the chin. It almost looked like it was like bloated or something. I don't know. It just looked a little off. It wasn't just the chin, though. If you were to ask me what is the one complaint you can possibly think of from Guardians of the Galaxy, it would be Thanos. Is he looked almost cartoonish, and 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 over exaggerated, and I I just really that's the one thing about the film that just didn't feel like the rest of the film. It just felt out of place, and even that, though it was part, you know. Yeah, that all over body armor. That gold all over body armor that they had him in or whatever was not doing him any favors either in that department. Yeah. It just did not look right. I got to admit, uh, I'm kind of with you guys, I didn't love it when I first saw the movie. That said, I think it played a lot better for me the second time. 
I, I saw the movie a second time last night, and for whatever reason, that whole scene just worked way better for me, seeing it a second time. Um, especially his grin at the end of that scene, as, as the camera's panning out, that just is chill-inducing. Mm. Yeah, that was good. And then credited, again, another kind of return, but Alexis Denisoff played the other, and so he did, he played the same... Pour one out. I'm sorry? I said pour one out for him. Yeah, unfortunately, but, you know, again, reprising his role from the Avengers, so uh, Ronan kind of did what Loki uh, did not do. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, so that was kind of cool to see that that, uh, he he returned in that role as well. Um, I I was kind of disappointed that they offed him i you know I, yeah. i'm a, I, i'm a fan of the actor and i thought it was cool that he's in it and you know i don't know i don't like death <laughs> and then kind of rounding it out um i've got again two other voice actors that i think we'll just kind of lump together one of them is in the post credit scene but nathan fillion who i didn't realize that the blue alien in the prison was nathan fillion um, I don't think anywhere. No. Yeah, which is hilarious because I, you know, I saw the little fifteen-minute clip. It never, it never clicked with me. I saw the movie and it didn't click with me. So I'm really going to be curious to go see it again and see if I pick up on it being his voice. I, it is, but it's he's definitely putting on a voice. It's it's difficult to tell even knowing. Gotcha. It, but it is him. I um, I knew it was him only because that was one of the few things that got spoiled for me before I saw the film. So I think Bleeding Cool or somewhere did an analysis of one of the uh, trailers or clips that came out and said, oh, here he is. So Um, and last but not least, uh, Seth Green is Howard the Duck. (laughs) (laughs) Technically, technically the first Marvel Universe movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, and I think yes, well, I'd like to think it's in the same bring it all yeah. back, then. bring it all back home. Yeah, to Leah Thompson make, getting it on with the duck. Yeah, maybe I'm just weird, but I really love the Howard the Duck film that George Lucas gave us. Yes, it was bad, but I loved it. Everybody forgets Tim Robbins is in that too. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> I've actually well, I think we'll, it a few times. I think we'll hit on this uh, when when we get towards the end of our discussion. So I'll just leave it as Seth Green, Howard the Duck. Again, fine performance. Um, uh, we'll just and once you know it's him, super obvious. Yeah, yeah, when yeah. You hear oh, that yeah. Voice. yeah. Yeah. I think we'll debate the validity or not of this uh, particular sequence uh, uh, towards the end of the show. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah, because I have things to say. So <laughs> yeah. So that again, that does it for cast crew. Uh, numbers a little lengthier than normal, but um, but again, I think this was kind of a kind of a. I think some of the things we emphasize in this, we don't put as much uh, emphasis on in other shows. Yeah, you forgot to also mention Stan Lee as the Zendarian lady. Sure, man. yeah, sure. <laughs> Stan the man, literally. Yeah, uh, yeah. So I guess we just talk, you know, again, like we always do, we switch over and just kind of talk about the movie. Uh, as a whole, I've got a few notes uh, of oh. things to touch on. I don't know if anybody has anything they want to open up with or just kind of give general general comments. Uh, First of all, real quick, did you guys see it in IMAX 3D or 3D, 2D? How many times? I saw it in 3D the first time and in regular 2D the second time. I saw it in 3D the first time, and then last night I saw it in regular 2D because that was the nearest uh, uh Scheduling wise, that's the only one that worked, but I still want to see it in IMAX. I'm sure I will see this at least once, if not two or three more times in theaters. Oh yeah, 
I saw it. I've only seen it once. Um, I did opt for just regular 3D, not IMAX 3D. Um, and that was mainly because when I saw that little 15-minute clip in the IMAX 3D, I thought the 3D worked really well. Um, and I'm usually kind of lukewarm on 3D, but I thought between the uh, kind of user interface in the prison and just the stuff that kind of floated here and there that we saw that I saw in the trailers and in the clip, I thought the 3D worked really, really well. Um, and I'm actually glad that I did see it in 3D. Now, when I go back and see it again with my wife, we probably will just see it in 2D because my wife is not a huge uh, 3D fan. See, and I'm not a real big fan of 3D either. Usually I, I kind of down on it and don't see things in 3D unless it's the only thing available. But I have to say this was hardly noticeable, but noticeable at the same time. It was soft to the point of... I mean, it just didn't get my eyes out of whack like it usually does sure. when I see 3D. So, you know, people that usually go to 2D and skip the 3D, they may want to see this one in 3D. I thought, like you said, it worked very well. For the for the Groot seedling uh, oh, yeah. scene, <laughs> oh, nothing yeah. else. Yeah. Or, or seedling might be the wrong term, but the, like the, uh, glowy, sap, glowy the, the, the phosphorescent glowy bits yes. were just beautiful. Yes. Yeah, that was great. Or both of them, because I guess it technically happens twice. That was great. I um, the first time I saw it was at um, a new theater we have here, and it was in call, a thing called XD, which is like yeah, bigger, we have that here. Yeah, it's like yeah. halfway between an IMAX and a regular screen. And it's digital and it's you know three uh, D, but I don't know. But it's extreme. It is extreme. They even tell you that as, they, as you go in. You know, that's what the X is for. <laughs> Whoa! Extremely digital. Scream Digital, yeah. And, then, and uh, I opted for the 3D because I read online the 3D was really good, and I agree. I thought it was it was um, really close in the 3D. And then the second time I saw it in actual IMAX um, 3D, so. But uh, I was yeah my my 3D experience. I'm again I'm I'm with you guys. I'm kind of lukewarm on it. I'm not really like oh wow 3D, but I thought in this uh, there were some really scenes that were actually pretty enhanced by it. Um, I'm thinking mainly like the scene where Quill goes out to give her, uh, uh, to give Gamora his, uh, helmet so she can breathe. Um, that yeah. scene was really great in 3d. Um, oh, the scene where he goes back for his Walkman when they're breaking out of the kiln and he's yeah. zip zipping along the, yeah. the, uh, to the Pina Colada song. That was really nice in 3d as well. Yeah. This movie almost makes that song not completely insufferable. Isn't it what? funny how... Like I you love could, that song. Isn't it? And this, this will we'll go off on a little bit of a tangent here, but have you ever had a song where, and, and I think this is going to apply greatly to this movie, but where it's like, song. yeah, that song is, is okay, or I don't really like that song. And then you see it in the context of a movie you love, and you're like, now I got to listen to that song all the time, because every time I think of that movie, or that song, I think of this movie, and I think of this particular you know sequence, and it just like, it, it makes you enjoy the music more so than you would if, if you just were like flipping the dial or something. Well, and I get a bit nostalgic because that is very similar to the type of mixtapes I made in the eighties. You know? <laughs> so, I mean, uh, that, that course. would be something I could see as my mix. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, as someone, I mean, when I growing up, we lived in, I lived in Texas for a while and all I did was sit around and wait for them to invent the Walkman. <laughs> in the early eighties, you know, they probably did. Yeah. I, I praise, I praise God, you know. But um, so yeah, seeing the walking with the fuzzy orange, um, uh, headphones and stuff was really, you know, cool. Like I said, it was a really good way to ground it in in our reality. You know what I mean? Yep. And and just to tie everything back, but the, um, 
Yeah, I just I liked all the songs on this mixtape. I mean, it's, Pina Colada's song is kind of. I mean, I'm sorry. I was around the first time it was popular, and I I still have not recovered. So, <laughs> um, but I, pretty much every other song. Like, I, I think the coolest was like the scene where they fly into nowhere to um, Moon Age Daydream. Yeah, that was that was yeah. just yeah. a beautiful, especially because I thought they were going to use Spirit in the Sky for yeah, that scene. That was just a beautiful sequence. Um, some of the music, like, it's very, it was a very Scorsese thing for him to do, like to use the music not only to, yes. you know, thematic stuff in the movie, but also as to tie into the story in the movie, you know. Was, um, and bringing what? Norman Greenbaum back to the forefront is something that was desperately needed. When's the last time we heard from him? Apollo thirteen, probably. Yeah. 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 So I mean, t- you know, I I thought it get... was, I, I mean, the tone was set right from the beginning. I mean. And by beginning, I mean after we get the, you know, the opening of the movie, you know, which is kind of the somber scene with his mom dying of cancer and him getting sucked up. And then, you know, and then and then we cut to the Marvel, you know, the Marvel Studios logo, which let me let me let me back it up just a little bit. So, you know, when Iron Man came out, when even when, you know, the Hulk was universal, we saw the universal logo at the beginning. When Iron Man came out, we get the Paramount, you know, you know, the mountain with the stars and all that kind of stuff. And we kind of saw that with all these movies. But since it seems like since Disney proper has taken over, we don't get that opening. Like there's no like Disney pictures or, um, you know, even like a touchstone or any of that kind of logo. It just goes right into, to the movie. And it's almost like jarring because you're not like, I'm not used to seeing that. Um, you know, you, it's like, you see preview, 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 and then boom, we're right in the movie. Um, and, and so it just, it just, it's, it's a weird shift for me. I don't think either Disney or Touchstone were the uh, ba- uh, brands that they distributed this under. I think it was under Buena Vista. And generally, you don't see a thing at the beginning of a Buena Vista film. Yeah, it's it's just so odd. It's like, you know, these days, I mean, every movie you see, any studio or any, you know, pr- production company that puts any, you know, puts a dime into the movie, you know, they have their little tag at the front, you know, that, that we're used to seeing especially like with the Warner Brothers movies, you know, we see that a lot or even with the Fox movies. Um so it just it just was it was something I noticed, I guess is what I'm getting at as a, as opposed to um you know just seeing that normally. Um, I just thought the whole the whole opening of this movie from the beginning with the incredibly sad scene with the boy and his mother, then to the Marvel Studios sequence that you're talking about. And then, you know, right to him on Morag uh, going after the orb or whatever and then he's like uh you know, he started, he, he pulls out his Walkman, you know, that we just saw in the earlier scene. Nice tieback, nice throwback. And then, boom, Guardians of the Galaxy. It fills up the whole screen. You know what I mean? It was just like very, um, like, if, with Come and Get Your Love. Yeah, yeah like that was the, just love. so yeah. perfect. Yeah. yeah. And, him and it just seems so appropriate. You know, just like him dancing and it's just him and, you know, he's walking around and the way they incorporated the credits. You know, like he would he would jump across something and they put the credit right behind it or, right. you know, and, and then when they did the wide shot, like you were saying, you know, with the big Guardians of the Galaxy logo, it just it seems so perfect. Like, I, I can't I can't explain, it, you know, it really set the tone. Yeah. You know, like yeah. in that first five or ten minutes, set the tone for the whole movie, which, you know, it, it just paid off the rest of the way. And I, I just really appreciated that. One of the things I like about the opening is is what it does for the whole rest of the film. I think that. Anybody making this film, the 10th MCU film, 
would would be tempted to tie it to the current goings on in the MCU that we know about and maybe have some scenes on Earth, some flashback things. I'm glad they didn't. I'm just saying I, I could see someone telling this story easily trying to do things like that. And the fact that the only bit of Earth we get is at the very beginning for the scene with his mother. And then from there on, it's like, guess what? It's an all new ride. We're going to a different part of the galaxy and everything you know is, is irrelevant. We're going to teach you about the Guardians of the Galaxy. And that's what I, I really like that they stayed away from any other ties except for the little Easter eggs here and there. Plus to yeah. set up this cool that cool like first ten, twelve, fifteen minutes or whatever. You you learn everything about Peter Quill through action, you know, through what he does. I mean you have the whole right. Fairy Raiders of the Lost Ark opening, you know, and then him trying to pass himself off as a guy called Star Lord, you know, just kinda his cockiness, you know, him, you know, barely getting away with the um with the Milano um, just that whole sequence is just you know from beginning to end, just awesome. And then, and then the girl and the popping girl up popping in the up cockpit, and kind of, yeah. Yeah. you know, like that's a perfect stinger yeah. that just tells you something else about his character and very you quickly. Remember her name? Uh, it was Marguerite, or it was something Greet, Sigrid, or something like that. Berit, wasn't it? It's not a. Well, I'm saying he yeah. couldn't remember her name. That was right, 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 right. But again, it sets it up. I love the world that they built with this movie. I mean, I like that, you know, there's these alien races and they, you know, they don't put a whole lot of, uh, you know, th- there's not a whole lot of explanation. It's just like, this is a part of space. There's all these alien creatures. They all intermingle. They all live, you know, they all live in different places and there's spaceships. And, you know, it's, it's, it, they don't, that was kind of like the Star Trekky kind of portion of it for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, I like that. I like that they just didn't overthink it and they didn't over explain anything. Plus, it was more. Um, just, it was they more. Just um, dump, dump you in this world. Uh, yeah, de- definitely, and it was more plot driven than that. You know, it didn't waste time saying, yeah. you know, this is Xandar and these are these people. It just it right. went with the story. You know what I mean? You go from him grabbing the orb to getting away from from uh, Korath and his guys to talking to to Rooker, telling him, you know, that he doesn't have the orb, and then Rooker throwing the bounty on him. The next scene we see, Rack- you know, Rocket and and Groot with their big gunny sack. Looking for bounties, you know. Yeah. It's just yeah. like the it, the story. It, it's just so story driven and everything. It doesn't take time to bore you with like exposition. These are these people, and they are good. These are these people, and they are bad. It just does right. it all with visual cues, you know. And I really appreciated that. I thought it was awesome. And just like even the stuff with Yondu, like I think they could have easily fallen into the trap of like doing either flashback sequences or show Quill yeah. growing up and how he was treated by. Yondu and the Ravagers, and they just they skipped all that. Like it, it wasn't necessary. Like we don't need to see that. We, for me, I kind of got everything I need to know about the relationship between Quill and and Yondu and the Ravagers, and it was, you know, good enough. Like they they didn't need to waste time. So, I mean, the movie was like two hours and one minute or whatever, and it felt really tight. Like it didn't feel like they they had to cut anything short it didn't feel like it, it it there was no part where it was really dragging it was it was just a good solid pace and it would be cool to kind of see the years of him growing up with Yondu and the Ravagers but you know make that like a Marvel short on the Blu-ray or something you know that would be a really cool feature to have cuz i think there would be some cool uh things to see between the two of them as he grows up but but yeah, for this film, for this story, it just wasn't needed. We got just the right amount of information that we needed to understand these characters and the universe they're in. 
Maybe that'll be the flashback that opens Guardians of the Galaxy 2. There you go. <laughs> so, another thing that I thought was awesome and, and you know, made my, made my eyes light up is uh, the collector's history lesson uh, portion. And we actually got to see Celestials on the screen wielding a, you know, the power gem yep. and seeing the destruction and everything and how that all interconnected. Um, and, and that's something that was awesome. I mean, in the fact that they, you know, said nowhere, just like in, in the, in the comics, nowhere is, is the, you know, decapitated head of a celestial. Um, it was a little more weird that they were actually mining it for, you know, uh, you know, biological matter and, you know, all this other kind of stuff. But it was really cool to see that, you know, I mean, the celestials are basically the origins and the building blocks of the Marvel universe. Uh, and to see them incorporate that into this movie, uh, and again, short and sweet, you know, Ronan or uh, the collector just kind of puts it up there, explains it. We get the, you know, the 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 10 cent version uh, and and move on. But I but just seeing a celestial like that was just awesome. Like to me, I thought that was uh, it's arguably the most important scene that's existed in any of these MCU movies to this point. Sure. Yeah. Like just in terms of overall Marvel history. Yeah. That is huge, and it's played off as a joke, which is even better. Yeah, like they just, you know, and not not in a disrespectful way, but just in a, we're going to give you just as much as you need to know, and then the characters are going to get bored because that's who these people are, yeah. and that's what they. Yeah, I was a little. Con- a- oh, go ahead, man. I was going to say this is a question that I wouldn't have had two weeks ago, but now after this, do you think that this opens the possibility for an Inhumans film? Oh, I think that's, oh sure. That's yeah. A inevitable because yeah, I, think so, I would have never thought that that would be something that I, w- I never thought we would be seeing a Guardians of the Galaxy film, but now that we've had this, I I really would like to see an Inhumans film. Yeah, I think that that's the way it's going. You know, because they don't have the, the mutants, um, they, they will bring in the the Inhumans as a replacement, and I think an effective one. And I love the Inhumans, so I can't wait. Yeah. I think at this point, Marvel could do like a damage control movie and it would, you know, make 200 million domestic. I mean, Marvel could do a, a, a Howard the Duck movie at this point. Yeah. I don't think they're going to, but I think they could, they could do. Yeah. I mean, th- this movie proved to me that, you know, th- th- blank check, they could do whatever they want. I mean, I, I'm concerned not to get too far off track. I'm concerned a little bit about Ant-Man. Um, I think that's going to be a tougher sell just because, I think it's a little maybe too similar to stuff they've already done with Iron Man, um, possibly. I could be completely wrong. But even if that, that movie is a bit of a misfire, they've got so much goodwill built up and so much you know, so much of a war chest built up, they could afford to have one that just does okay or that doesn't, you know, swing and you know, and hit the fences. So um, Well, I'm it, concerned about the Ant Man movie too, because they're not gonna have Eric O'Grady in it, so yeah. <laughs> I, but I, I do think, you know, w- with Ant-Man, and I, I understand exactly what you're saying, yeah. but just like we talked about with the um, with the marketing for this movie, I think you sell it on Paul Rudd, and you sell it on uh, mostly humor in the trailer, even if that's not, you know, in, in the end what the movie is, I and mean, it could be, I don't know, but you sell it on the jokes, and you sell it on him, and I think you've got yourself a winner. True. Yeah, I was a little, I was a little uh, concerned when I saw the end of Thor 2, the stinger there with Benicio Del Toro's The Collector, it didn't seem... All that great to me, but I thought he was really good in this. And I mean, yeah. wh- wh- while we're on the subject, we should talk about all the things that were in his collection. I mean, you've got the Adam Warlock cocoon, like under glass, yeah. like over his shoulder. 
um, Cosmo the Dog, which I mean, everybody yes. knows from yes. Guardians of the Galaxy. Howard the yeah. Duck, which we mentioned before. Um, there, there, I know on uh, it's all connected on our Facebook page. We I just listed a, a thing where it had like fifty uh, different Easter eggs and connections and whatnot from Guardians of the Galaxy. But um, those are just there's some a Chitauri. Of the, yeah, there's a Chitauri. There's also um, there's an, a Dark Elf. Dark, Dark Elf. Elf. From Thor too. There's rumors that Beta Ray Bill is there. I've seen exactly what they're pointing at, and it could be, but I'm not. I wouldn't, you know, bet money. I on would it. love for that to be Beta Ray Bill. There's definitely a, one of the Slither aliens. Uh, I heard someone say they saw the Quantum Bands. Mm. Um, it's interesting too because Karina is a totally different character in the comics as well. The one the girl who reaches for the gem, yeah, and, and explodes or whatever. I mean, she ended up being the partner of Korvac. Uh, in the comics, right. and she was like the, like the one thing that grounded him. And the one big, you know, um, introduction of Korvac is like a big baddie where he pretty much killed all the Avengers, and it was her that saved him. And it's the Collector's daughter yeah, in the comics, right. isn't it? She's the Collector's daughter. Yeah. yeah. Well, and that scene because I think we've we've listed Speaking all the major of, things like in, the, in the Collector's archives. Yeah, we're talking about um, um, marketing and, and trailers and stuff. This one, there are quite a few differences that I recall between the trailer and the actual movie. And I think the biggest one, and this isn't a problem at all because it helped really market this movie and, and get it out to the masses to say, these are these characters. These are who they are. But Drax wasn't in the, the usual suspects lineup at the, at the beginning. Um, but he obviously was in the trailer. Yeah. And from what I understand, a lot of that thing was shot ex- pretty much exclusively for comic. Sure. Sure. Um, just as a, you know, this is something we can shoot really fast. It's it's pretty simple. It'll get across the point. And then when they discovered how well it worked, they decided to, you know, implement some of it into the film. But from what I understand, it was never really intended to be there in the first place. I'm sorry, I don't know how this machine works. Yeah. <laughs> Hilarious, even though even though we saw it coming. Um, and then when it pops back, which was not in the original yes, trailer, oh, that's yes. even better. Well, and the thing is, the fact that they didn't have the extended of, of this sequence like you see in the trailer is, like we've said many times, the brilliant marketing that was done for this film, anybody watching the movie, I think, has seen the, those trailers, and it's already sure. ingrained in your memory that that happened. So it kind of still works, because I'm sitting here trying to remember, I thought he was in the lineup. <laughs> no, yeah. Um, and the other, a couple of, like, there was a scene, and maybe if you guys remember this from the movie, since you, most of you guys have seen it twice, I don't remember. There was a scene of Gamora where she had, like, no clothes on, and she kind of, like, turned around and was kind of, like, covering herself. And it almost, they kind of alluded to her and Quill maybe having something going on. Uh, I don't recall that being in there at all. That's definitely not yeah. in the movie. No, I think there, there was a scene where they kind of had a look and a moment, but she was clothed. Yeah. Oh, I thought maybe then, before the cherry bomb uh, part where they all got suited up, I thought it might be there. Yeah. I, then the other, and then it was just a couple like line things. Like I know, like Glenn Close said, I think like twelve billion people in the you know in the gal in you know the, all in the hands of these idiots or or these guardians or something like that. Like I don't remember that line, like that exact the, the trailer bitch, line or that exact line being in there. Yeah, I um, think that is a different line in the movie. And, and again, totally not a big deal like you know that that doesn't affect me at all but i just think it's interesting how you know these alternate cuts and stuff were used and i think it's smart you know that's not important to the overall story in the overall movie but if it helps get butts in seats then you know to tell a narrative in a trailer 
then it makes sense to do it. You know, it's that nobody's going to really care that, you know, a few lines were altered or whatnot. So not, not a biggie, but just something that I noticed, um, sitting, you know, sitting in a theater. Right. And I mean, when you're editing a film, you got to make sacrifices. You're going to cut things out for time, uh, for the plot to make sense. But if you can take those things you're cutting out and repurpose them for marketing, all the better. Yep. It's like using different jokes in the trailer than you're going to use in a comedy. You know, that happens all the exactly. time. It's super and they'll smart. they'll all end sure. up on the Blu-ray and DVD. Absolutely. Yep. Right, right, exactly. Absolutely. Um, um, we- Go ahead. One other, the one thing, and this is a nitpick, um, and, and again, didn't take me out of the movie, didn't turn me off, um, but, but something I noticed and was a little bothersome, when they were going over the plans, like the whole, like, this is our heist job kind of scene where they lay out what they're going to do, and they're you know doing the suit up thing, and they played the cherry bomb mix in there. Was it just me, or was was that mix like way too hot? Like it was almost overpowering the dialogue at that point to where it was difficult to hear what they were saying. I didn't notice. Did, it could be, but I'd have to go back on my third viewing. And, and I'm, for that I'm someone who thinks you can never play that song too loud, so you probably should. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I thought that was such yeah, a great Yeah, it was scene. something like I was just trying to listen to... Yeah, I was trying to listen to what they were saying. It just seemed like at times it was like too hot. Like that mix was just a little bit too hot. But again, I didn't know if it was just maybe, you know, the, the clip or the cut that I had or that particular version or, or whatnot. But it was just something I noticed. Um, one thing we, we haven't talked about, and we talked a lot about, the, you know, the humor of the film. But uh, going back to the, co- the collectors, or well, in this case, Slave uh, Karina, as opposed to his daughter in the comics... What really surprised me about the movie was how much heart and pathos was in this thing. Yeah. Um, I was not expecting, you know, you, you expect from the first scene, of course, you expect, you know, if you know what it is going going into the movie with, with his mother dying, you expect that to be, you know, a very emotional scene. And, if, and it was, I thought it was very effective. But then also with that, you know, sudden... Uh, explosion if you will by uh, Karina that was really emotional there was a number of moments towards the end of the movie but particularly the one that had me welling up in the theater and it went from um on a dime from oh this is awesome to oh my gosh that's that's brilliant and, and but in a sad way was that moment uh right at the end with the with them all grabbing the infinity stone and Peter seeing his mother that one last time with the take my hand. I never expected that that was going to come back yeah. there. And it hit me in the gut so hard. I mean, I, I don't know that I'd say this was up-level pathos or something like that, but it was really close. I mean, and it was super effective for a movie as funny as it was. The the, the, the emotional gut punches they were able to pack in as well. E- even just things like, you know, Drax... Uh, petting uh, rocket towards the end there. Yeah. You know, those things just worked so well. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I was it's pretty so. sad when Groot ended up like he went through the wood chipper, but... Yeah. yeah. I knew he'd be Why? Back. But knowing Groot, that, w- that was going to happen. Yeah. And, and I thought... I it, it was kind of surprising how they carried that forward. So I just thought that, you know, they were just going to show a twig and he was just going to, boom, grow right back you know, to his, his regular size, but it was actually, it actually worked way better, especially at the very end went with, you know, when he put in the, the, the mixtape, you know, part two. Yeah. And then, then they started playing, um, uh, want you back. Yeah. I want you back by the Jackson five. Um, and, and just having that little plant just kind of, you know, doing the dance. And then when, 
Drax, you know, that whole interaction between him and Drax, when Drax would look at him and he'd stop, and then Drax would look away, sharpen his knife, and he would start dancing again. That I mean, the theater was rolling when when that when that was going on. So that was it was worth it to to go that route with that character just for that part. And I don't know if any of you interact on Reddit much, but Reddit has gone crazy the last couple days with Groot as far as there's a lot of fans mocking up um, toys that could be marketed of the little dancing plant and all that. And now it's kind of, well, is somebody going to make this? You know, because everybody's like, shut up and take my money. So, yeah, you know, <laughs> I, I, I know I would put put down some cash for one. Uh, I like the continuity between the Avengers with Thanos's. I forget what they called that area. They actually gave it a name, Sanctuary. Sanctu- yes, uh, and it looked exactly the same. You know, just kind of the stair steppy. You know, just hanging out in space with him in his chair, and you know, again, very much like the comics. Um, you know, for, of what we know of Thanos. So I thought, again, that continuity I thought was cool. That's got to be a relaxing porch to sit on. <laughs> well, if you're Thanos, if you're anyone else, I'd assume not yeah. as much. <laughs> I love the ship, the Milano, um, allegedly the Alyssa Milano, named after uh, the lovely Alyssa Milano. Oh, I just kept thinking about cookies. Oh. <laughs> I, well, you I'm, would. I'm, no. I'm fat. I'm sorry. <laughs> as am I. Those are some mighty fine cookies. So there you go. Mm-hmm. But it, it just was a really cool, and then they gave it kind of that hot rod effect, you know, at the very end when Rocket, you know, hits the gas, it kind of sounds like a like a street racer. Um, you get that kind of sound effect going. But I just, I like the look, the, the orange and the blues and the whites like that, and it, it kind of looks new, but also lived in at the same time. Again, kind of like that Star Wars vibe to it, that everything in this movie wasn't new and shiny and bright. You know, it looked lived in. You know, there were obviously places that looked a little cleaner and nicer than others, but in general, it, it looked like a world that is lived in. And, and I think, um, you know, after the Star Wars prequels where that kind of went away, I think there's been a lot of, uh, you know, nostalgia for that kind of a space, uh, you know, world where things look like, you know, people would actually live there and it's, and it's kind of in, you know, maybe a, a slight disrepair. Plus, I mean, a lot of, My a lot only... of the sci-fi we've gotten recently, like Elysium and Oblivion and stuff like that, and After Earth have been, like, really, like, super serious. This, I yeah. mean, this is, like, this is the first comedic sci-fi movie I can think of in quite a while. My only real complaint about the Milano is that it wasn't, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, distinct enough, in that it has a very distinct design that was cool, but then, uh, what is it, I guess two-thirds through the movie, you find out, all the Ravagers have that exact same true, ship. True, true. And it would have been nice to have a more distinct silhouette to be able to pick it out in battles. And, you know, it didn't end up being a huge problem, but it would have been nice for there to be something about that ship to make it uniquely his from the outside and not just one of the Ravager, he, uh, you know, fleet. He just needs to slap a bumper sticker on it that says, my other car is the fantastic car. Yeah. And that'll add enough personality for him there. Well, it's not even it's not even just personality. It's literally silhouette. So from a distance, you can yeah. tell is what is what I'm looking for. And that's more of just a uh, pedantic uh, screen design thing that I'm talking about more than anything else. I say the other just ones... puts a big spring on top with a big middle finger just wagging back and yeah. forth. <laughs> that would work. <laughs> the other ones don't have that cool wood grain cassette player uh, in, in the cockpit. Yeah, but that's on the inside. <laughs> no, <I know. laughs> and that was a nice uh, cassette player. That was player. cool. Yeah, that was really cool. 
Um, and I like how at the end, you know, he finally opens up the the gift from his mother, which I, to me wasn't really. And a, it's exactly what it had. Yeah, to I mean, be. it wasn't a surprise. But the fact that it was like, okay, this is awesome mix volume two, and it just was like so perfect, right? Because this is like the next phase of his life. You know, now he's got like friends and he's got, you know, basically a family, you know, he's never had really a family. I think his relationship with Yondu obviously was more adversarial and, and, um, you know, maybe slightly abusive. Uh, well, he was about than... to... yeah. Yeah. Well, he did stop the crew from eating him though. Right. So I, <laughs> yeah, but given that, you know, now he's got this family and, you know, he's kind of, I think he's kind of coming to terms with things. It was just really cool to, uh, to see that, and and then of course too, that gives us awesome mix volume two for the second movie. So we we you know oh, we'll have a uh, uh, a really cool badass soundtrack for Guardians two, which weird to say is what I'm anticipating the most. <laughs> I wanted to ask you guys, and of course the 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 most annoying uh, nerd thing I could possibly do, which still does annoy me, is that I am bothered by the fact that a song at least one song from awesome mix volume two is on awesome mix volume one true yeah that that just bothers me on a nerd level but uh, <laughs> that that was uh it was when i also like that in the letter you know you you get that uh not, joke's not even the right word but you get that little right. acknowledgement that it was right. his mother who called him star lord right and we of course as comic fans know that that's more than mm. just his you know goofy uh space pirate right. sure but it was nice to have that that little acknowledgement there you know, this is an important thing to him. Well, that's what the mother says, but she's also in, you know, the throes of dying but, at the moment. Right, but but Nova Prime said you're part of an alien that we haven't seen, that or nobody's seen in a very long time or something like that. Right, but that could just be that the Spartaks were thought dead. Yeah, true, or, true. You know, I've heard, I've heard speculation mm-hmm. that possibly they go the route that Adam Warlock is his father... Um, I think more likely, and this was also due to a misunderstanding on my part, the, um, you know, you know, the celestial we actually see in in the collector's, uh, flashback thing. I believe that is Isan the something or other. I I was also reading that, uh, Jason Quill or Peter, uh, Peter Quill's grandfather's name is Isan. And I was under the the mistaken, uh, understanding at first that they were the same Isan, even though it's spelled the same, but they could go the route that him and his father, while they are Spartaks, there's something extra in there as well. Maybe inhuman, maybe, no, you know, you. there could be all kinds of things. I got you. You know, maybe his father is the king of Spartaks, but he's also inhuman, you know, or something like that. Because they've just gone to such big lengths with reintroducing Jason into the 616, I don't see them all of a sudden going back and changing that again in a major way. Right. Like, I, I, I have no problem with them changing things, you know, to match the movies a little bit more. But this seems like one of those times where if they were going to do it, they just had their opportunity. To right. jump off the rail a second, do you think that this in any way is going to give us some connection between Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and Guardians of the Galaxy, like through the Sky Connection or anything like that? Yeah. No, I don't think so. Well, I mean, I think she'll be inhuman, but... Uh... Beyond yeah, that, we've I speculated. I mean, you could always have some. You, um, I, the biggest thing I think you might have is some kind of reference about, you know, a missing person case, a missing person's case from 1988 oh, true. that went unresolved Maybe. that they never really, yeah. they never found the answer to. But you know, something like that. It's just since the show has been on the air, they've tied it into each Marvel movie release. So I was just trying to think if they were going to open the season maybe with a little something. Yeah. 
it is Cree blood or, you know, the inhuman connection or something. Possible. Anything's possible. Um, that's all I really have for my notes. What? Yeah, I was going to say, if you guys are ready, so, uh, let's, uh, let's rate it out. Richard. I get, we go on a scale of 10, right? Correct. I give it 9.5 I am Groots out of 10. <laughs> Jim? I am Groot. I give it the same thing I gave Avengers, which was a 9. Straight up 9. I loved it too. That was great. I think I'm with Rich. I think I'm going 9.5. Um, you know, if we want to branch out into the question of best Marvel movie ever, I think It, Winter Soldier, and Avengers are circling the top three spots, and they don't show any sign of you know slowing down and finding a seat anytime soon. But they're they're all right up there for me. They're all really good. Yeah. If you ask me, it's usually it's usually the one I I watched most recently. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Even well, if I'm it's a... Incredible Hulk. No, I mean of those top three. Oh, okay. Of Avengers, uh, of Winter Soldier, and uh, uh, Guardians, those top three. I mean, those are my top three as well. Which I don't mean to down but, the Incredible uh, Hulk. You know, it's at the bottom of my list of the ten, but it's still, you know, a good seven out of ten. It's still not Ang Lee's Yeah, I mean. <laughs> Something's got to be last. Yeah. Exactly. Um, I mm-hmm. give this one an 8.5. I, um, I liked it a lot. Uh, I did not, you know, I... I you know, we had a poll up, or uh, you know, people were putting up their order of movies uh, on on the website earlier. And uh, you know, Avengers for me is is creme de la creme. I it's going to be very that's a very very high bar in my mind. Um, and then to me, Captain America: The Winter Soldier, then the first Avenger, and this one and Iron Man one, I think are just mm. very neck and neck, um, very neck and neck. And uh, you know, I think those top five are just like so high, such high quality. Uh, that uh, you know that that it's just gonna be tough. So I I really liked it a lot, but but that's that's where I that's where I lay my my numbers. Would you say that all of those movies are like Kevin Bacon? Yes, just like Kevin Bacon. One of uh, Aaron Newis, Newers uh, sometimes co-hosts on um, Out Now, uh, Scott Mendelson. I don't know if you've heard him on the show. He's a super smart, everyday guy. Yeah. He writes for For Forbes dot com. But he he wrote it or wrote or posted an article the other day of asking if Marvel was the new Pixar. I think so. Seeing as you know, even when they're you know they're launching you know movies that aren't sequels, they're still doing really really well just on the Marvel name. Yeah, I I you know, much I the way think, like I think that brings up the real question is what will be Mar- what will be Marvel's cars? Yeah, oh. super successful and terrible. You didn't like cars. <laughs> I think I literally fell asleep during now, Cars. Now, Cars 2 was I think the only great. movie that's ever happened. I loved Cars. Yes, Rob loves Cars. Now, Planes, that was dumb. But Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Although I hear the sequel is actually pretty good. I yeah, didn't see it. Yeah, that's what the... my sister said, but I, I don't know. Anyway, we digress. I, I have <laughs> to say, comparing it to Pixar is not a fair comparison, because to me, there it's you're looking at two different, complete different types of films. But as far as on a success scale, I wouldn't say that they're the next Pixar. I would say they've gone beyond that and beyond Pixar. Because Pixar's had, like Jordan has said, some duds. I don't think Marvel's had a dud yet. And I don't see one coming as long as Feige is involved. 
We shall see. So at this point, um, there's not going to be another Marvel proper, Marvel Studios movie, I would say, um, continuity-wise, until Avengers Age of Ultron. We will have Big Hero 6 uh, that comes out. Which that trailer looks uh, awesome. Yes. Well, yeah. we're, the, um, the Daredevil uh, TV series premieres next spring. I think it's May 2015. Is that is that confirmed? That is confirmed. Yeah, we I reported on nothing's on the other day. Huh. It was uh, it was confirmed. And until so then, May we'll 20... have the second season of Shield. So. Right, but I mean, as far as like movies, say, they're supposed know, to be in continuity. Goes, right? yeah. I mean, we're you know w- this is it until uh, until Avengers: Age of Ultron in May. Um, we're not getting a winter movie this year, uh, like last year we got Thor: The Dark World. We're not getting that this year. Um, and so it'll be close. You know, we'll have May. I guess in May we're getting Avengers: Age of Ultron, and then July we're getting uh, Ant Man. So that's you know, it's it's almost kind of like the year we got Iron Man and Hulk, where they, you know, they were right close next to each other, or uh, Thor and, and Cap. You know, where they came out, you know, a couple months apart. So, did you see the news? I think it was today or yesterday that uh, Marvel now has back the Punisher and Ghost Rider licenses. Oh, that's been a while. I think now. we've known that for a couple yeah, years that's now. Been a while. Really? I don't yeah, know. Oh, yeah. There was oh, a yeah. big article about it. I read it was today or yesterday. I thought that they didn't have it back yet. No, really? no. I mean, the, wasn't the last Punisher movie them? No. The Lion's Warzone Gate. one? No. I, no. Well, I, I know it wasn't under Marvel Studios, but I'm pretty sure they had the rights to no. it back by no, then. No, they didn't. Lionsgate no? had the rights. Okay. Uh, it was shortly after that that I think that's when it, they reverted back because Lionsgate basically said, yeah, we're done with this. That was the shell casing that broke the camel's yeah, back. Yeah. Have they <laughs> yeah, also had, had the for a while. Have they had the blade license back too? Yes. Okay, cuz that was in this article. I guess I just got someone sent me an old article. <laughs> that does happen from time I, to time. I on didn't the realize. I I thought that they were still not their properties. I knew they had gotten Daredevil and some of that back, but I didn't know that. Yeah, I think the last yeah. kind of the last one that's kind of getting close to them getting back is Namor. Yeah, I don't think they're ever going to get back. Well, I shouldn't say ever. Um, I I think by the time they get back the X-Men, the Fantastic Four, and Spider-Man, this fad will have dissipated. Um, You know, everything's cyclical. At some point, this is going to go away, just like Westerns and, um, you know, comedies and, you you know, just, you know, just anything, you know, sci-fi stuff, anything cyclical. When did comedies go away? Well, I mean, you know, for, I I don't know, I guess, I guess. I guess R-rated comedies. Yeah, I guess like, you know, like we had in the 80s. Um, buddy cop movies, you know, just, just things like, you know, that, that just tend to be cyclical. Um, I, I, I anticipate this fad eventually will, will maybe not go away, but not be the juggernaut that it is. And, uh, you know, at that time, I think they'd be willing to give them back. But I think at that point, you know, it's probably like, um, it'll, it'll be a little too late. Well, I think all the nerd boys and girls of our generation that got into filmmaking, have now finally started and successfully accomplished uh, what we all dreamed about in the 80s, uh, <laughs> these types of films, because sure. now with the technology and everything. So when you look at it in the next 10 years, you're going to have the 90s kids where, uh, you know, Marvel went bankrupt and uh, <laughs> yeah, they went ridiculous with all kinds of chromium covers and all that nonsense. So who knows what we're going to get. Yeah. Wildstorm movie. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, please. No. <laughs> please no. Young Blood Young Blood the musical. Yeah. Hey, Power Rangers movie's coming. Yeah. 
And as a, as a person of that generation who grew up uh, watching Power Rangers when I wasn't technically supposed to, even I'm going, really? <laughs> oh, you know you can't wait to see their pink ranger on the big screen. No, I can, I can wait. In all her, I'm, I, in all, and even if I even if I couldn't, I'm sure there's a subreddit you know dedicated exactly to what you're talking about <laughs> that I wouldn't need to see any stupid movie for. It. Nice. All right, so I guess that well, on that note, I <laughs> on guess that I, note, yeah, that pretty much wraps it up. Um, again, we kind of got delayed, uh, which uh, tends to happen. Uh, so we will get to Green Lantern. I think we've got a breather at this point as far as movies coming out. Uh, there's a few Sin City. Yeah, I don't Sin know City. that I'm gonna. Yeah, Sin City, uh, Dame to Kill Four is coming out. I- I'm gonna try and see that if, and I think if enough of us see it, we could probably cobble an episode together. So that's a possibility. Um, Russ, do you do you understand that we're throwing more things at you to kind of keep pushing Green Lantern inevitably? Yeah, back yeah, that's the goal is to push it yeah. month over month. Yeah, because <laughs> you know uh, it, I, we're gonna have to rewatch that. You know to do that. Yeah. And, yeah. Could we just do a whole episode on the uh, Deadpool test footage instead? Yes! I mean, to both Ryan Reynolds. Yes! <laughs> sure, sure. Um, <laughs> but it, there's three movies that'll get pushed to the actual backlog because we just didn't get a chance to to pull something together, and that's um, Edge of Tomorrow, which is based on the, the, the manga of All You Need Is Kill, Hercules, which is based on the radical comic Hercules, Oh, I thought it was based on a dump I took no, once. We're, we're going to do an episode on that because I had no plans to ever see that if, film. If the wheel commandeth, we will we will oh. speak it. Um, and then the... The, the, the wheel's uh, on a short leash. Also, uh, Snowpiercer. Snowpiercer, yes. Manga. Yeah, that was another one that's on the list. And so depending if we get to uh, Sin City, it will either, we'll either do a show or it'll end up on the list. And if the wheel... Uh, happens to to pull its number then we'll talk about it at that time so um at this point the next probably if we don't do um if we don't do sin city then i think the next theatrical release of a comic-based property is probably going to be uh big hero six if i'm not mistaken i think that's that's really the next thing that i that i can recall i i don't know if you guys plan on seeing it i don't know jim i don't know if you're going to take um either of your kids maybe to even see it or Perhaps. Yeah. I haven't decided, decided yet. I think my, my grandkids, I think, are old enough now because they love Wreck-It Ralph. And I think this is very much in the vein of Wreck-It Ralph or the Lego movie, which they both love immensely. Uh, so I think they could probably handle sitting through maybe this Big Hero 6. So uh, so that that might be a good candidate um, if we if we don't get past Sin City. So um, thanks again, everyone, for joining us for Real Heroes. Or you could leave us a voicemail at 972-798. 3830. Uh, let us know it's for the Real Heroes podcast. You can send us an email at realheroes at hhwlod.com or check out the Facebook group for the HHWLOD podcast network. You can check out our YouTube channel, um, youtube.com slash HHWLOD podcast network. We also have a link on the main website page at hhwlod.com where we have all kinds of cool stuff there. Um, articles that pop up here and there. All of the episodes uh, are there as well. Check everything, all the cool stuff we got out at hhwlod.com. Uh, so in next, until next time, this is Russ for Jim, Jordan, and Rich. We'll see you next time on Real Heroes. Ooga Chaka. I like your knife. Keeping it. That was my favorite knife. Stand out in a crowd. So-